this morning. We're going to do things just a little bit out of order, so uh, bear with us. Turn to your left and right and greet the good people around you. Children, you are dismissed to your classes. Good morning, or as they say in Africa, Mulibwanji. Mulibwanji, there you go. Good morning. Well, uh, we're doing it a little differently this morning because uh, Patricia and I are leaving uh, today for Africa, and so we're going to have to do our part first and then go. Unfortunately, uh, can't be here till the end of the service, but we are delighted to be here with you. And uh, I've asked Bill Barry. One of our elders to come, and uh, we appreciate you praying for us before we go. Um, Patricia, this is sort of in and out burger for her. She was in India last week, and then today she goes to Africa. So um, we would just greatly appreciate your prayer. First of all, thanks for so many of you who over the months have said, hey, we're praying for you. And um, actually, she said something interesting. She said, um, um, you know, we, we fly on the wings of your prayer. And uh, she also said, if not, uh, we're grounded. So that's how important it is. So uh, we would appreciate that. And, and I, we love the tradition here of, of uh, being, uh, have you guys uh, join us here in the middle to pray. And so if you do that, that's wonderful. Yeah, so if everybody could stand up and um, kind of move to the center. Just kind of put our hands on Patricia and on Roland. Also want you to know that uh, Jim Liljegren is leaving tomorrow um, for, uh, for his own uh, mission trip uh, in, uh, in Eastern Europe. And so we'll pray for him and commission him in, his, in absentia this morning. Um, but let's, uh, let's just pray. God, we know that uh, you are pretty clear that we can do nothing apart from you unless we're connected to you. Um, and so we pray, Lord. We pray for Roland. We pray for Patricia. We pray for Jim. We pray for the teams that they're going with because they're not doing this on their own. And Father, um, we just we commit them to you. We commend them to you. We um, we pray for them, Father. And we commit, Lord, that we will we will pray for them um, over these next two weeks 
as they're um, ministering in very, very difficult circumstances and situations. Uh, we know that um, a couple of the last things that you said were uh, your, your encouragement and command to make disciples of all the nations, all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you promised that you would be with us forever. Um, you also said that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the remotest parts of the earth. We thank you, Lord, so much for uh, Roland and Patricia and Jim's example of uh, taking those commands seriously. And, Father, you are very clear again that um, it is when the Holy Spirit comes upon us that we will receive power. And so we pray, Lord, for that power. We pray that your Holy Spirit would come upon them in a very mighty way. Lord, that you would do awesome things, but that, uh, that they would recognize that they cannot do this in their own strength. Father, we know that it's a difficult place to go. Um, Patricia just coming back from, from India and, and now going off to, uh, to Africa. And um, Father, it's, it's difficult with food and, and just basic comforts of life and the spiritual oppression and all of the things that are fighting against them. And so they need your spirit. But you also promised that the kingdom of hell would not prevail against you. And so we claim that, Lord, and we ask for your Holy Spirit to do wonderful, amazing things succeeding far above anything that we could possibly hope or imagine. And we commend them to you in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Thank you so much. Thanks, brother. Great. Well, it's um, interesting uh, whenever you head out to something like this, there's all kinds of events that go on before, during, and after. So um, if, if someday you're thinking, hey, I wonder what Roland and Patricia are doing, I'm probably in Africa saying, God, would you activate the prayers back home? Okay, and, and I do that. That's the way I pray. I say, God, would you activate them? We need your prayer right now. And um, so if somehow we pop into your mind, uh, that would be great. And also, for those of you who'd like to follow the trip, um, there's some of these uh, just hot off the press this week that has the Patricia's uh, review of India. And then on the front is Africa with some prayer requests and kind of the dates of where we're going to be. If you'd like one of those, they're right back on that table. And we'd appreciate you taking one. And continue to pray for Jim as he heads out uh, also. How many have heard it said before, we are unique as people? you know, and that, that we're like snowflakes, you know, there's no two alike. I was going to ask, I was going to say this morning to have you turn to one another and say you're flaky, but my wife vetoed that. So it's optional. If you want to tell somebody that you can do that. Um, but uh, snowflakes, you know, everybody knows there's a unique print on every one, which is unbelievable. But you know, even snowflakes have similarities, don't they? That is, they're snow, they're not mangoes, they're not guinea fowl. Anybody know what a guinea fowl is? They're all over Africa. They're a funny-looking little bird, and they're all over the place. And uh, so snowflakes have a similarity. And uh, when we go to talk to the needs of people worldwide, we know we're speaking to the same needs we are here. And all of our research shows that leaders on every continent have the same needs. We've said they are similar in kind, but they're different in degree. 
That's all they may have. But, but we are similar people, and that shouldn't surprise us. And we've also shared with you that um, we understand what the number one need of leaders and therefore all of us in the world is. Do you know what it is? You probably do. It's our view of God. The number one need of every Christian leader, non-Christian, is our view of God. Is it enough? Is it sufficient? And we know Jesus is the one and only true God, but the question is, how well do we know him? And most of us would have to say that we know Jesus better now than we did five years ago. And if that's true, how much better do you think we'll know him five years from now than we know, than we know him now? So it's just saying our view of God needs to grow and increase. And um, how would we know what our view of God is? Well, we can say, this is what I believe, but... You see, it's revealed through our convictions. We can say, this is what I value, but a conviction is what I'll sacrifice for to make it happen. And that's more than what we say. Um, We could also say it's how we treat people. I can know how I view God by how I treat people. We've talked about this before, that all of our relationships are a, a, a reflection of how we look at God. A third one is how we use our resources. How do I view God? By how we use our time, our bucks, our energy, our gifts. Another one we could say is what we do, what we think, and how we act in private when nobody can see except God. And he sees everything, right, on big screen TV in heaven. He knows every thought that we have. But the one I want to talk about this morning and focus on is this one, how we handle life's challenges reveals our view of God, maybe more than any other. Jesus said that the storms of life would reveal our roots and the strength of our foundation, didn't he not? When he said, the one who builds their house on a rock, when the storms come, it'll stand. But if it's not, when the storms come, it'll disappear like sand. And isn't it true as well that some of the world's greatest literature, written all throughout history, was birthed as a result of pressure, pain, or difficulty. Think with me. The greatest seller of all time is what? By far. (laughs) Every year it outsells all other books combined by some enormous number. And if you think through from the beginning of the end of Scripture, the stories, the epics, the adventures, the odysseys of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and Moses, and Ruth, and Rahab, and all those people, it was not a, a Brady Bunch kind of experience. It was difficult for all of them. And from the most complex to the simple, they were lives of ordinary people. And in their moments of destiny, they met God because God showed up in those pressure points of life. The greatest seller of all books other than the Bible until the 21st century, does anybody know what it was? It's called Pilgrim's Progress. Has anybody here ever read it? Also, if you haven't gotten the children's version, adults, uh, for kids and grandkids, it is fantastic. I would read it to my kids and stop. No, Dad, don't stop. Keep going. It's the journey of a man, of a man talking about life through a a, a story and uh, all that he faces. And uh, do you know where it was written from? That's right, prison. John Bunyan spent... 12 years in debtor's prison. While he was there, one of his daughters died. And yet it was from this prison that this incredible story was written. 
And this morning we're continuing in looking at a letter from prison. And it tells us, interestingly enough, where to find joy in our own personal prison experiences. You might say, well, what are those? We'll get to that in a moment. But it's where to find joy. You know, as we go through life, we've likened it often to a mountain climb. And we shouldn't be surprised if life gets steeper and more difficult as we get older, the further we go through life. It's just the opposite of what we've been trained to think. You know, it gets nice and easier. Uh, Jesus never told us that, but I guess uh, our culture did. And how do we make our foundation secure as we face these prison experiences? One of the challenges is this. Whatever got us this far... There are foundational truths in our faith that are important, that are good. But it does not necessarily mean it's going to take us up the next steep mountain that we face. In fact, most people find when they face a great difficulty, they're not prepared to handle it. Because what they thought provided strength at the moment is not strong enough. And so what we're going to discover is that uh, to go higher, we need to see God working and doing something new. We will discover truths of God and the dimensions of God that we didn't even know existed as he takes us into these uncharted waters. It's a new discovery about him because he's bigger than we imagine. And no, uh, no present experience can, can fully reveal who he is because there's so much more of him. So I want you to imagine yourself this morning sitting in a prison cell. I know that's a stretch for some of us, but um, it's a... Uh, uh, a reality. I went, as I was a student at Florida State University, uh, I met the chaplain who was a graduate of the same seminary I was, uh, the chaplain of Chattahoochee State Prison in uh, uh, Apalachicola County on the Waxahachie River. It took me about two years to learn to say all that. <laughs> those were Indian names. I was, I'm a Florida State grad, Seminoles, you know, the, those are Seminole names. And there I began to go with him over to the prison, Chattahoochee State Prison, meet prisoners, hear their stories, and I got an eyeful as we began to work with these prisoners. And we think, oh, they're so, no, they're not that much different than you and I. And they have hearts, they have needs, disappointments, just like anybody else. 90% of them or more had no relationship with an earthly father, which is part of the reason, major reason why they're there. So I'd like you to turn with me this morning and uh, imagine ourselves in prison because we're going to hear a prison letter. And Paul writes to the Philippians, we began this uh, last week, and they have great concern because they've heard Paul is in prison, but they don't know how he's doing. If you had no message from a prisoner, you wondered, and then all of a sudden this letter shows up, how would it impact you? So beginning at verse 12, let me read. He says, I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I'm in chains because of Christ. And because of my imprisonment, most of the believers have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. So question for us, since God, since Jesus is not chained, but he overcomes First question we want to look at today is, how does Christ work in your prison experiences? You say, well, what are they? We'll get to that in a moment. Do we give God a chance in our prison experiences to work, or do we flee, or do we fight the circumstances? What's the other alternative? It's to invite him in to our prison experiences and say, 
Jesus, I need you. I invite you in. Instead of running from this, I'm going to ask that you come and join me. And this, this report from Paul begins as a celebration. It's a celebration report. He says, you want to hear something great? He says, God is at work here in the stinking, lousy prison in these lousy circumstances. God is at work. He says, I'm locked up, but the good news isn't locked up. It's unleashed, and it's growing, and it's impacting everybody here and around me. He says, the whole palace guard knows why I'm here. And he says, not only that, but it has given encouragement and boldness to believers to be more open about their faith. Now, I know there's a lot of discussion about who's the palace guard and where's Paul in Rome. Was he in Ephesus? We don't really know where he was when he wrote this, but he was in one of his usual prison stops. You know, they say wherever Paul went, there was either a revival or a riot. And he usually ended up in a local jail somewhere. And so this is one of those jail stops for him. But he's saying that God is at work. And in answer to their prayer, the Philippians were probably praying for him. And they had no idea when they get this amazing report right after the introduction saying, hey, God's at work. Here's a question. Could Paul's prison experience be part of God's strategy for advancing the good news of his kingdom? Could Paul's prison experience be part of God's strategy for advancing the good news in his world? What do you think? Yeah. But here's a greater question. Could your prison experiences be part of God's strategy for advancing his kingdom here on earth? I think it's also affirmative. We want to look at that this morning. So what do we mean prison experiences? I mean, here we are this morning. We're not locked up. You chose to come. You, you, know, you could choose uh, warmer clothes today and, um, because it's a little cool, although it's getting warm up here. Um, and there are different kinds of prison experiences. First of all, there's the physical kind where somebody is locked up. And our brothers and sisters around the world who walk with Christ are experiencing great persecution. The greatest persecution in 20 centuries is going on right now. More martyrs for Christ, more, you don't hear about it, but it's happening now than in all the centuries combined. And we also can experience circumstantial prison. For example, someone can, uh, can have an illness, a great illness. They're fighting cancer. They can't change it. Or maybe you're in a difficult marriage that just isn't changing. Or maybe you have a job that you wish you could leave. And even in those circumstances which appear to be unchangeable, we can experience spiritual freedom. And then there are those who are also free physically, but their souls are in prison. What do I mean by that? I mean, we can experience the prisons of fear, of anger, anxiety, of bitterness, of resentment, of loneliness. You know, I was talking to someone the other day who's married and is so lonely because it's a lonely marriage. There's no partnership in it. We can experience the prisons of jealousy and envy and greed and, and lust and all those other things. And then we run to our escapes to numb our pain. And we're a society that knows how to run to escapes. We run to food and chemicals and harmful relationships and, and all kinds of things to numb. Every one of us battles with our own prison experience of some kind. Some more, some less. And most of the time, we're not willing to really share what it is. But you know what? 
it doesn't matter because the keys to freedom, whether you're physically imprisoned or just in your soul, the keys to freedom are the same. We want to look at that this morning. Now, I don't want to minimize um, in any way physical suffering and to say, oh, well, hey, but the gospel spreads. So I want you to hear this morning some stories as uh, I'm going to invite Patricia to come and uh, talk about recently uh, what she's experienced in India. And so, honey, would you come and share with us? Good morning. Thank you for your prayer. Thank you for caring. I, I can't tell you how much it means. And especially if you're overseas and, and, um, and just to know God's people are praying. This was a trip um, that had great contrasts. It had um, physical and circumstantial challenges and then also the, some of the most amazing forever uh, rewards. And um, I, I returned just a week ago tonight. So kind of a quick turnaround here. Um, some of the, the physical challenges and circumstances were um, uh, canceled flights and delayed flights and um, all kinds of things going on. And yet we made every flight and every connection. I would call it a God connection. He was there to meet every need. And then um, I, I think of another one. We were in a taxi, and taxis in India are quite an interesting experience alone. They, they, they have lines in the road, but what they're there for, I have no idea. Because a taxi, trucks, cows, dogs, everything, they're all over. Rickshaws, tuk-tuks, everything. And so it, they're just all over the line. Well, our, our taxi blew a front tire, but that didn't stop him. And he just kept going. And we were going amok all over everywhere for 45 minutes. And I know that God was our protector. It was just another evidence of him. And then we got on a plane from um, Amsterdam to Delhi. And it was, it was noisy with screaming and crying and wailing like I've never heard before. It filled the whole plane. It turns out that um, these were refugees being taken back to Afghanistan and there was one woman and several men and they were losing the freedom that they had known in the Netherlands and this went on for an hour and a half and of course it made many passengers very angry and I just sat there thinking what freedom I have not only do I have freedom in Christ I have freedom in America and I just said thank you God these people are in agony absolute agony and then we arrived in India and uh, at two conferences and the women were amazing you take your eyes off the circumstances and you look at what God has called you to do and in that there is a reward that I couldn't even begin to tell you as they tell us now you have equipped us you have trained us. You have given us tools. And we can go for the next year with what you have given us in this week. And we will go into villages and we will train children and we will teach um, the poor and the illiterate. And they go places that we can't go. And they know they're going to be persecuted. And yet they will do it willingly for the sake of Christ. I'm full of stories, as you might know, because every day I ask for them to feed us with what they've been going through and also how God has been faithful to them. I'll tell you two quick ones. 
One was uh, a woman that said they, she, ha she and her sisters had a, a special um, uh, feeling for children. And so they went into a village to train the children. And many gathered around because they wanted to hear what they said. And so day after day, they were training the children. And, and also, though, it attracted some teenage boys who were hitting the children and taunting them and taunting the trainers. And, and this went on day after day after day. And as the weeks went by, they noticed that it started to lessen. And the boys were listening to what they were saying. And she said, it's amazing the power of God's word. She said, they began, they stopped their taunting and they began to listen. And they listened more every day. And they started asking questions. And one day, they gave their hearts to Jesus Christ. And she said, we have gone on to another village, and now it is these young men who were taunting the children who are now training the children. Isn't that amazing? The power of God's word. And then another that goes along with the subject of this morning. This little woman stood up, and I had asked specifically, tell us stories about what you have gone through for the sake of Christ. But not only that, what is he doing through you? And so this little woman of about probably four feet ten, I don't even know if she was that tall. She was tiny. And she told about going into a village with three other women, and they just wanted to tell the people about Jesus, but they were not received well. They were heckled, and, and, and people were taunting them and throwing things at them. And they had no place to stay, but they wanted to be there for a while to tell them about Jesus and keep working with them. And so they had heard about a training, a Christian training center that was fairly near, and it was a men's training center. So they took these women in for safety. Well, it was not safe. And the radical Hindus heard about it. And so they came to the training center and they began beating the men. And in her words, they beat them to a bloody pulp. And she said, and then right in front of their eyes, they took all their Bibles, all their training materials, and they burned them. And then they took the men and the women to jail. And they were imprisoned. And I don't know how long it was. But I do know that when they were released, she said, we went back to the training center so that we could continue telling people about Jesus. And I said, what happened to you then? Did they continue to persecute? She said, oh, yes, but it was all verbal. They taunted us and, and, and kept at us. But she said, you know, the power of God is far greater. And many came to know Jesus through this. And we were able to leave that village because so many uh, um, now know Jesus that they're telling others. And now we'll do the same thing in another village. Isn't that amazing? I just, I love hearing the stories. But here is a, a quote that has stayed in my, in my heart and mind. And I put this in, in the newsletter. I said, well, have you women been beaten because um, some of the groups I have trained before have been beaten for the sake of Christ. And here's what they said. It said, the Hindu radicals beat some of the men to a bloody pulp, but we women were not beaten in our bodies, but have beaten, been beaten in our hearts for the sake of Christ. And they said, we're willing to continue to do that. And I said, why are you willing to go through so much to tell others of Jesus? And they said, 
He's the only true God. He's the only one who answers prayer. He's the only one who loves us. And they call him their creator God. Um, I'd love it if, if you would remember them in prayer. I told them you would. So um, pray that you will. God bless you. Thank you, honey. Those same women who said they had not been beaten in their bodies were the ones who spent those days in jail as well, imprisonment for Christ. And as Paul is talking about his prison experience here, what helped him rise above the experience of his pain was to find joy in Christ changing the lives of people who didn't know him. Prison always was and will be suffering. I don't want to minimize it all. Oh, everything's wonderful because, you know, in fact, if we had time, we would have gone to Acts 16 today and see Paul's first experience in Philippi where he and Silas were beaten, bloodied, and put in stocks at night. Remember they were singing and their singing was so bad it caused an earthquake? And then the rest of that story about the Philippian jailer. So we don't want to, to uh, minimize that in any way, the suffering of people who experience prison. This was not a picnic for Paul. It was painful. But you know, the gospel throughout history from the first century until now has spread where through suffering and through prison experiences of God's people. From the very first century, when the word we use for witness, and it, when it, uh, in Acts 1.8 it says, you'll be my witnesses, the word is martus. It came to mean martyr, because in the first century there's a good chance if you were a believer, you would be killed for your faith. And so that's where we get our word martyr. The Roman Empire, then as you go through history in the 7th, 8th, 9th century, many before that, the Waldenses, who were the true church, were slaughtered by the Roman Catholic armies. The Huguenots in the 1700s, 1800s in, in, in France, the same thing. They fled all over the world. And there's a story of, of a, a young girl who was 14 years old who was asked to recant her, quote, Protestant faith to say that the Roman Catholic Church was the only way to God, and she refused. They put her in prison. And she spent the next 38 years of her life there until she died. All she would have had to say is, I recant. But she chose Christ, she chose imprisonment over a freedom that she did not believe. And on the wall of the, of the cell which still exists to this day, there's written in French, resist, meaning resistance. No, I will resist any attempt to take me away from saying Christ alone is my salvation. People have experienced great pain. And you know, as we hear more and more stories, and I don't have time today to tell you about what's going on in Africa with some of these dear people, but is it a wonder if the world is in spiritual conflict? No, because we live in a world of conflict. But this story is simply saying God uses the negative of the world's circumstances to demonstrate the greatness of His grace. And there's a passage that's familiar to all of us. I want us to read it together from Romans 8.28. But I think we often miss the implications of this. Would you join me? It's there in your outline. It says, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose for them. This doesn't just say everything's going to work out. It doesn't say that. It says for those who love God who follow His purposes. But there's something else that it means. It means that in our prison experiences, whatever yours are, whether it's just in your soul or some other circumstance you cannot change, we are to look for God in those prison experiences. Look for God and then invite Him and take Him into to, to live for His purposes in the middle of those. 
That's a very different way of looking at life. Instead of saying, I got to get out of this, I got to get it over. Paul looked for God, and he's the one who wrote that verse as well. And so how do we respond to our own prison experiences, and how do we respond to those who actually experience a literal prison? I told you my experience when I was at Florida State University. Notice this passage from Hebrews 13. It says, remember those in prison as if you were there yourself. Did you know that's in the Bible? It says, don't just think about them and quit. Remember it as if you were there. This is how we started the message. Remember those who are being mistreated as if you felt their pain in your own bodies. And for the last weeks, I've been sharing stories of around the world of how brothers and sisters in Christ are going through enormous persecution. And I remember as I talked to the guys in prison when I was in college, hearing their stories and the pain of their lives, and they're looking for the same things you and I are. After the first service, someone came up and said, he's been involved in prison ministries here. Every church needs to be involved in local prison ministries for men or women. Second question is, what helps you rise above opposition? Paul shifts gears and he says, it's true, verse 15, that some are preaching out of, out of jealousy and um, rivalry, but others preach about Christ with pure motives. They preach because they love me for they know I have been appointed to defend the good news. Those others do not have pure motives as they preach about Christ. They preach with selfish ambition, not sincerely, intending to make my chains more painful for me. But what does it matter? Whether their motives are false or genuine, the message about Christ is being preached either way, so I rejoice. And I will continue to rejoice. There's the joy in his choice. For I know that as you pray for me and the spirit of Jesus Christ helps me, this will lead to my deliverance. What's Paul saying here? We expect opposition from pre-Christians or non-Christians. But about, what about other, other people? What about Christians themselves? I mean, do Christians ever pick on each other? Of course not, right? They wouldn't do that in a church, would they? Yes, we all know about that. Folks, this is not new. This goes back to the very first century. For 2,100 years, this has been happening. And for Paul, he said, hey, look, they know I'm locked up here. And so they're using this situation to promote themselves, to move in on what Paul had started. He was the pioneer. He'd started the movement. And their motive was to promote themselves at Paul's expense. This is no spirit of camaraderie. This is a spirit of competition. But you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. Aren't we not supposed to judge people's motives? What's Paul doing here? And how do you deal with someone who's deliberately out to hurt you in, quote, the name of God? Well, Paul once again looks above the circumstances. He rises above it to see it from God's perspective. And he sees the good news is expanding, even through them. He says it doesn't matter. He says the good news is expanding. He says, I'm in prison, but the good news isn't locked up. It's free and it's working. I had two grandfathers. Uh, one was an atheist, and he died before I was born. The other was a strong, devoted follower of Christ. He died when I was nine months old. But he would be critiqued and criticized for his way of serving Christ. He was a businessman, and um, he, his businesses, business was owned by some Jewish brothers, and he just spent all his time talking to them about the Messiah. They didn't criticize him, but others did, and he said this. He says, look, I like what I do do better than what you don't do. 
What a great response to saying, I'm going to do what God wants me to do. And you know, it also recognizes this passage, folks, that we can do the right thing for the wrong reasons. By the way, in today's world, if you're a young person or out there, you're told to promote yourself. But it goes beyond just promoting yourself, tell people what you can do. It really means make yourself look better than you really are. That is, substance doesn't matter, just impressions. But that's how we run presidential elections here in America, too. And, but there's a problem with that. You see, if God isn't in your promotion, it doesn't count in the future. It doesn't count. In fact, the scriptures say in the Psalms, it says, promotion doesn't come from east or west or from man. It comes from God himself. There's a, a passage of scripture I, I'd like you to, and, and uh, I, I put down the wrong verse. You know, one little number uh, makes a big difference. I put down for, uh, 2 Corinthians 4 or 5, which is also a great verse. It's just not the one I wanted. And so I'm going to read to you 1 Corinthians 4 or 5. And um, um, listen to this. It says, so don't make judgments about anyone ahead of time before the Lord returns. For he will bring our darkest secrets to light and will reveal our private motives. Then God will give to each one whatever praise is due. You see, it matters to God why we do what we do. We might fake people out, but our motives are evaluated, every one of them, on big screen TV because God knows every thought we have, ever will have. He sees in secret. There's no secrets from God. And says he will evaluate and judge our lives based on our motives. Why do we do what we do? Which is a great question to ask ourselves every day. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Just to impress people? You see, there's only two options. I can do it for me and my benefit, or I can do it for God's honor. And only one counts. And I can, I've shared with you before as a young pastor how I struggled wanting to, you know, to develop a growing church. And, and yes, I wanted to help people. Yes, I wanted people to meet Jesus. But there were times when, it, wh what was it about? Was it about me? Was it about the kingdom of God? And God knows that on this earth, we will never, ever have a 100% pure motive. There's always something about us that's in there. But God knows we can pray and we can ask him for kingdom motives. And what's that all about? What is a kingdom motive? It's to promote Christ wherever I am. How I do my work. Am I there for just to make a buck and go home, punch out, and sluck, slack off maybe like others do? Or is it to do my work excellently for Christ? It's how I treat my family, how I treat people. Do I take advantage of them? Do I neglect? Or do I... Love them the way Christ wants me. How I spend my time, my bucks, my energy. And then even more is, does that bring me joy? What brings me joy? If it's just those things and nothing of seeing Christ's kingdom advance, then I know that my motives are off and askew. If it's all about how I'm going to do. You know, you might think, Paul, hey, he got used to prison. He was in there so much, it's no big deal. We, we, when we go to these countries, people will say, well, yeah, but they're used to their poverty and their pain and their dying. I'm sorry, folks. A prison is a prison. You never get used to it. And did Paul want any release from this? Did he say, I'm okay if you put me in here the rest of my life? Well, look at verse 19. Because verse 19 tells us that, he says, For I know that as you pray for me and the Spirit of Christ helps me, this will lead to my deliverance. That's why also we ask for prayer because there is no freedom of soul or anything else apart from the prayer of God's people. And what he's saying is, I know that God, through the Holy Spirit, 
coupled with your prayer. So he's saying, I'm dependent upon your prayer to, to, to eventually God break me out of this place. So here's the question. Who is praying for you today in your prison experiences? You see, most of us want to keep those that are of our soul high, hidden. We don't want anybody else to know what we're struggling with, that we're battling with. You know, whether it's being a parent, it's a marriage, it's a job, it's a, it's a habit that we won't, don't want anybody to know about, that we've tried to break and we cannot. We'll stay in that prison until we get some people praying for us. Yes, you want, you want to give it to God first, but the scriptures tell us to pray for one another. Because there is no freedom without revealing and Paul let his prison be known. He said, here I am, and this is hard, and I want you to pray for me. There's a third question that comes in this passage, and that's this one. What is your ultimate treasure? What is your ultimate treasure? Now notice what he says. He says, verse 20, For I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, but that I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past. And I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ whether I live or die. For to me, living means living for Christ. And dying is even better. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. But for your sakes, it's better that I continue to live. Knowing this, I'm convinced that I will remain alive so I can continue to help all of you and experience the joy of your faith. There's the joy again. And when I come to you again, you will have even more reason to take pride in Christ Jesus because of what he is doing through me. What is he doing in this passage? He is revealing his treasure. Now, folks, when we're in a prison experience, our ultimate values, our convictions, our treasures bubble up to the top. You can't hold them down. What we're really about comes out. And you see, he says, first of all, he desires to be bold and courageous like he was in the past. Why? Because prison experiences can beat you down, can, can snuff out your courage for Christ. They can do that. So he's saying, pray for me that I don't quit being courageous for him. How about you? How about me? What is it that beats us down? The sickness, family issues, job difficulties, personal issues, they can cripple us. And so we should start to shut down. And his goal is a life that honors Christ. Notice verse 21 where he says, for me, living is Christ and to die is even better. It's gain. Now, Denny Balesi, um, who's actually here this morning, uh, spoke on this a couple weeks ago. He did a great job because remember he asked you to fill in the blank. He says, for me to live is what? Is it really Christ? Or is it a comfortable lifestyle? Or my family? or even my influence, or any number of things. Well, those are good things. They're gifts from God, but they can never be our life. They're not the giver. They're the gifts. And even more, if anything else, including all those things, is my life, then eventually we're setting ourselves up for enormous fall. Do you know why? Because all of those things can be lost, and one day will, when we check out of this earth. Does it surprise you that I also included in that our influence? In that list? Because isn't that what Paul's talking about in this passage? The influence that God's letting him have? And even that can become something that's important to us and gets ahead of our relationship with Christ. But Paul hints at it. 
He says, I'm in prison, and this has limited my influence, but it hasn't limited God's. He's unleashed. Jesus is not chained. He's an overcomer, and he's spreading the good news. My mentor, Dr. Joe Aldridge, I've shared this before, was an incredible man. <laughs> Enormous faith. In fact, when he left Mariner's Church in Newport to go to Multnomah uh, to be the president, he says, I'm not going to be the president of a Bible college. He says, I'm going to impact the whole Northwest of America. And then America, and then the world. And he wasn't talking about pride. He was just talking about he knew what God wanted to do, and that's exactly what happened. They started the Northwest Renewal Ministries and prayer movements that swept not only the whole Northwest, and they, but thousands of leaders and pastors in over 40 states in America, over 50 countries around the world. It just swept. Because he was a man, I've never met such a gifted man. And a man of compassion, love, and all these gifts and faith. And I remember I told you that he was praying in his early 50s, God, whatever it takes to get me to the next level with you, bring it into my life. A year later, he found out he had Parkinson's. I talked to, Joe passed away about three years ago, and I talked to Ruthie, his wife, and she said, never once did I hear him complain. He just said, this is God, what I need for my life. But he had said this to me earlier. He said, you know, the first part of our life's all about doing. He says, I'm sensing the last part of my life, God's calling me to being, being with him. And he's enough. Because you see, Christ was his treasure. And eventually, whatever else, all of our treasures will be taken from us. And that's how he could say to die is gain, because now he's with his ultimate treasure. And folks, anything else is a poor substitute. If you're in pain, if you're drained emotionally, if you're even dying physically, and someone says, hey, let's go to Disneyland. Does that sound like a great day? Hey, how about another round of golf? Or, hey, let's go buy a new dress. Or whatever we're today well, women wear. You don't go buy dresses. But, but the point is, those things are cheap substitutes for the real deal for Christ himself. Because you see, Jesus is the only one who never fails us. He's the only one who can fulfill all my longings. He's the only one who can bring, can carry me through death, and you and I were made for him. So how do I know he's becoming my treasure? Well, is he simply the one I go to first with everything in my life? Do I want to be with him? Or, oh, I forgot about God today. If I can forget about my treasure, then he's probably not my treasure. Is he the one opinion I want to please above all opinions? Is his opinion more important than in-laws and outlaws and everybody else around us? That's another way I can know. But here's one that helps me. Do I love who he loves and do I love what he loves? You see, if I'm growing in those areas, I know Jesus is becoming my treasure. If I start getting into all these other things, even good gifts ahead of him, I know my treasure's moving in the wrong direction. And you see, my choice are based on time with him. You know, it's interesting. Here's what our prison experiences do for us. Your prison experiences give you time to ponder and reflect on what really matters. And ask, what direction is my life going? And to stop activity and so we can hear God's voice in the middle of this. And that's why the Bible says in the 23rd Psalm, sometimes he makes me lie down. He makes me lie down sometimes so that I can hear him. 
and I can reflect on what life really means instead of just being in a hurry. And then I can return to my treasure and to share that treasure with others. And that produces the joy of verse 25. So simply, here's the question. Is Christ increasingly becoming my treasure? If so, I'm setting myself up for the next steep, for, for whatever mountain I have to climb and for all of eternity to experience his joy. One final question is this one. How do you see yourself? What do I mean by that? Well, look at these last few verses. Verse 27. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know you're standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Now look at this. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them they're going to be destroyed, but that you're going to be saved, even by God himself. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. We're in the struggle together. You've seen my struggle in the past, and you know that I'm still in the midst of it. How do we see ourselves? You see, our prison experiences are not only where we discover the power and the greatness and the grace of God, but it's also our prison experiences are a mirror where we begin to see ourselves as we really are. It's beginning to be revealed. And it's also a helicopter ride so that we begin to see life and what we're experiencing from God's point of view, not just our own. From his perspective, it says we're citizens of heaven. Well, what's a citizen? What's a citizen of heaven? <laughs> it's where we belong. A citizen, is that's, that's home. And he says, this isn't home. It's also where you're authorized to live, you're protected, you're governed by its authority and its benefits. And our physical, our prison experiences give us what my mentor called destination sickness. You know what that is? No matter how great life is, you can have great experiences, a wonderful day at Disneyland, hey, you know what? And then we go to bed and there's, after the effect, there's always there's this little bit of something not quite right. And God is never going to let this earth provide all the happiness and joy that we want because this isn't our home. And the longings we have, whether it's for love or relationship or someone to notice us or to succeed, all of that is destination sickness. It's a longing for God himself. And prison experiences giving us that longing for home. You see, folks, a better days are coming when we're not going to be on this earth anymore. But while we are earthbound, he says, live like citizens of our real home. That is, live like Christ's ambassadors. I can assure you, when we get on the plane tonight for Africa, <laughs> um, it won't be long before we have longings for home. When we're in Africa, you know, like when I get on the plane, okay, that'll happen. But we're going to be representatives in another country of our country. Will we be ugly Americans or will we be there to bless them? And you are a representative of Jesus Christ every day if he lives in you. And you're not a citizen of what's here. That's, that's an earth shaker for us folks to, get, to wrap our minds around that one. And when are we to represent Christ? today, every day this week, this month, this year, where, wherever you are. 
And then he says, unite together in a common purpose to seize opportunities for our community for Christ and beyond. That's why important we start praying even for Easter and people who would come. But also part of this package is the fact that while we love Christ, there's somebody who hates your soul and your very existence. We have an enemy of our soul, and it's, that's why he says we have the privilege not only to, to believe in him, but we will suffer if we truly follow Christ, just like our brothers and sisters do in India and in Africa. But he says, don't be intimidated by that, by our government or anybody else. He says, it's part of the game. You see, we're playing a contact sport. He says, keep on playing. Keep on climbing that mountain. And what it's going to mean is you'll need new encounters with Christ for the new challenges. We'll need new lenses to chart the uncharted waters that we'll go through. And if we run to Christ in our difficulties... Grace will carry us to him and to his perspective. Look at this verse. Above all, you must, uh, excuse me, for our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can now see. Rather, we fix our things, our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. Is that double speak? How do you see what you can't see? What he's saying is that don't get too caught up here because what really matters is the eternal and not just what we're going through here. He's saying, too, that if you and I go through this for Christ, these difficulties, we will be rewarded like a soldier returning from war. You know, it sounds funny, but uh, I have to look at our little jaunt to Africa, which is short, just two weeks. It's sort of like going back to boot camp for a couple of weeks. And what we need to know is whatever experience we're in, in our prison experiences, we're not alone. I love this passage from Isaiah. It says, In all their suffering, he also suffered. And he personally rescued them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them through all the years. You know what that says? Is in your prison experiences, God gets involved. He lifts you up. He carries you where? To his heart. And also, he lets us one day to see the final defeat of evil in this world, of pain and of hurt. Final question. Would you like it if your prison experiences, no matter how hard, cause people to pay attention and to open their lives to their creator God, to Christ himself? That's what God has designed for us in our prison experiences, not to be wasted but to expand the grace of God to this world. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for being a God who meets our every need. And I would pray for your people today. In fact, this morning, if you know that you are experiencing the clutches of prison experiences, either just in your heart, Or maybe there's actually some physical experiences, things you cannot change. Why not offer those to Christ right now? Why not say, Jesus, I invite you into this prison experience. And I want to begin to see you in these prison experiences. God, I want to know you in your strength. 
I thank you for coming for me. And maybe today you walked in here and you're not even really sure if Christ is in your life. What could be a better time than just say, I open my life to you. I invite you in to give me a new beginning. I want your mercy. I want your forgiveness. And I don't understand all this. But I know I want to follow you because I've walked my own path long enough. It's produced enough of its own pain. I want to follow you on a pathway to joy. Dear friend, if you've opened your life to Christ like that, he will take you on a new adventure. And he will give meaning, not only to the successes, but to the challenges. He will help you climb the mountain to the journey and to the destination he has for you. Father, thank you for your people. Thank you for the privilege of letting us live and understand the experiences of a man from 2,000 years ago who taught us about how to rise above our prison experiences and find your promises in them. Use us. Father, bless us. Bless your people as we walk this walk together. And I ask that Christ would become increasingly our treasure that no one can take away from us. Pray it in his name. Amen. We're going to divert from our order just a little bit, Dave. We're going to sing, My Shepherd Will Supply My Need. Let's respond in worship. Let's sing the 23rd Psalm. 